Hello, and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. And first up, let me just say that I hope you're having a great holiday season, whatever it is you're celebrating, even if that's just a break from work. This, as you might have guessed, is the last Heredity Podcast of 2018. And to celebrate, we're bringing you a little bit of glory. Well, maybe not so little, actually, as we're going to be discussing the genetic connectivity between populations of the invasive morning glory across the eastern United States of America. Described as a noxious invasive weed by the authors of the paper we're focusing on today, morning glories are actually quite beautiful and have long been a staple in the horticultural trade. However, farmers are not a fan, as the morning glory can quickly strangle crops and outcompete them for resources. What's more, the spectre of herbicide resistance also looms large with this species. Fortunately, though, for farmers, the Backham Lab at the University of Michigan is on the case. They are studying the genetics of the species with a view to tackling the spread of both the plant itself and any potential herbicide-resistant genes. Of course, the first step in this is deciphering the landscape genetics and connectivity between different populations, and the means through which the plant itself is actually being spread. And this was the topic of our recent heredity paper, The Relative Contribution of Natural Landscapes and Human-Mediated Factors on the Connectivity of a Noxious Invasive Weed. I recently got an overview of this work and its implications from lead author Dr. Diego Alvadro Serrano. But, to be honest, I basically knew nothing about morning glories. So we started by getting me caught up with why it's such an interesting group of plants to study. The morning glory is actually a big group of plants. The genus is the biggest within the family. And in particular, the tall morning glory, which is the species I'm focusing on, is one of the most prevalent weeds in agriculture, especially in the U.S. But it's not only restricted to the U.S., it also occurs in all tropical areas. It's in all continents except Antarctica. It's appreciated for its horticultural value, so people like to have it as an ornamental. It's uh, very pretty, isn't it? Yeah, it's really pretty. It has purple flowers. Actually, the color can vary quite a bit, but in general, most of the time you will encounter purple flowers that open early in the morning, and that's what the morning glory name comes from. The Latin name for Ipomia comes for similar to a worm in reference to its habit to tangle around other plants. And that's why it makes it such a problem for agriculture, because basically it grows on top of other crops, restricting its access to not only soil resources, but also to sunlight. Yeah, so I mean, that shows why it is an invasive species and why it could be potentially really damaging. And is it a big problem in the States? Yes. And so it's listed among the 10 worst weeds in the U.S., there are no actual estimates for purpurea, but its close sister species, it's estimated to cause damages around $10 billion. So you can imagine. Yeah, that, that, is, that is quite an invasive species. So obviously this is a landscape genetic study. So, I mean, it sounds from your paper like what you're interested in seeing is how human activity was helping to spread these plants. So we know a little bit about the biology of these species, but what we really didn't know was sort of the population structure. So how cohesive are the populations? Are they sharing genes between themselves or not? And if they are, what are the factors promoting that gene flow? So that was the main goal of the study. First, understand what's the general diversity and sort of level of population isolation, but also figuring out which factors do condition those levels of isolation. So to do that, basically what we were focusing on is both natural and anthropogenic factors, because the idea is this species is widely distributed. It basically inhabits agricultural fields and roadsides and other open environments, but also it's an introduced species that presumably experience a strong bottlenecks in its way to the U.S. So the question is, 
with that natural history, what you will expect is plant that is fairly isolated. So how is that it is doing so well? And so the question was, can we infer sort of what's the current levels of a gene flow within this species? And to do this, we use both traditional markers, but we move beyond that and start looking also into some next generation sequencing data. And the interesting result that we weren't predicted from the start was that the patterns we see with sort of the more traditional markers that people have been using are not necessarily the same that we are seeing with a more extensive genome-wide coverage. That is interesting. But I guess before we kind of get into the details about that in itself, I mean, uh, you'd mentioned those two different data sets there, and you've actually combined those molecular data sets with some really good data on sort of habitats and human land usage. So how was it you went about sampling these plants and kind of compiling these different data sets? Basically, the lab has been working on this plant for a while. And basically, the sampling consists in traveling around farms and asking the people, do you mind if we take a couple of seeds or leaves from your plants. For the most part, farmers are tired of these plants, so they are happy. I can imagine. <laughs> yes. Uh, so basically, our sampler was constrained to agricultural fields. And that's an important distinction here because I mentioned in the paper, it also occurs as an ornamental, but we didn't sample those populations because it was harder just to get into people's houses, as you will imagine. So that was the individual sampling. For GIS data, it was a little bit more challenging. So what we started with is thinking about what are the main factors that presumably may be important to this plant, considering its natural history. So growing in agricultural fields, of course, uh, many of those fields are supplemented with nutrients, but still the conditions of the soil, so how much humidity the soil retains, for instance, is important for many plants, including this. So we start looking at those kind of data. And at the end, a big portion of the time we dedicated to this project was just on compiling those data. Similarly, for the sort of anthropogenic factors, it's hard to actually track human activities directly. So we start looking at layers that can inform about those activities indirectly. Things like what are the land cover? So what are people putting in there with kind of crops they are planting along our samples? And for every single time we went to the field, we not only collected our samples, but also sort of take a description of the habitat around. And finally, for sort of understanding the impact of urban versus sort of rural areas, we thought the best approach would be to look at human population density. The reason is there is a clear correlation between how much people there is per square mile and kind of the activities that people develop in those areas. And we were, in that way, assessing sort of the structure of the landscape from the human perspective through this indirect GIS data. Yeah, no, great. I mean, they look like really comprehensive and really detailed data sets. So what were you finding out in terms of the population structure of these plants in relation to these sort of habitat and anthropogenic factors? There are a couple of things really interesting. So for instance, when we look at genetic diversity of the structure of population, both markers were coming up with basically similar estimates. So for instance, we identify with born markers, low genetic diversity, and that is consistent with being introduced. And in particular, it is hypothesized that this species that is originally from Mexico was first brought to Spain by Spanish colonizers because of their ornamental value. They like the flower, they take it back to Spain. From them, it was moved to England and from then back to the US. So 
during all those processes, you have multiple founder events that reduce the effective population size of these species. And therefore, it's not surprising that the genetic diversity is low in these species. But we also found with both markers that the genetic differentiation, contrary to our expectation, was not great. So we get an FST value that is considered moderately low. That means basically that different populations are not in isolation. They are sharing individuals. They are sharing migrants. And most interesting, we did this one analysis that allowed us not only to look at migration, but recent migration. So we're talking about one or two generations back. With this analysis, we were able to demonstrate that the patterns of connectivity were not ancient ones. There's something that is currently going on. No, fantastic. And you mentioned previously that the microsatellite data and next generation data weren't exactly in agreement. The differences were basically in the extent to which these markers recover gene flow to occur. So whereas the microsatellites, the faster evolving markers identify more widespread and common migration across all populations, a SNP dataset, sort of the next generation dataset, identify more constraint. So the SNP dataset show that the majority of individuals were actually being recruited from the same population. However, there were instances in which this was not the case. Migrants from other populations were coming on, and most interestingly, were coming not from populations nearby, as you will expect if it's a simple case of isolation by distance, in which maybe farmers are sharing contaminated equipment, but we were seeing across the states really far distances that you cannot explain because a farmer in North Carolina will not be sharing equipment with a farmer in Ohio. Okay, so I mean, you're mentioning there that it can't be dispersal through farming. So what do you reckon is underlying this ongoing connectivity between these different populations? So now it comes handy sort of the history of these species that I was mentioning. This species from the beginning was appreciated for its pretty flowers. And we know there are websites online where you can actually buy seeds of these species to grow in your garden. So what we're Thinking it's really happening here is the horticultural trade is helping this plant disperse those long distances. And the other reason why we think that is we've noticed that people are actively killing these plants in agricultural fields because they represent a problem. But they are not doing the same, even though it's an invasive species, on roadsides, on open areas, because they just like the flowers. So what is the next step with this? Are you going to try getting into people's gardens around about the agricultural sites to see if they have these plants? Yes, that's precisely where we're heading. So we're really interested in sort of testing this idea that is the horticultural trade. So we're thinking about sampling in people's gardens, and that's why I mentioned this caveat at the beginning. So we're trying to get that. We're also trying to get involved with the agricultural trade directly. So as I mentioned, there are websites where you can request seeds. So that's our next step. We are requesting those seeds. We're also trying to sample a little bit from outside the U.S. We mentioned in the paper another possibility is the fact that there might be recurrent recolonization or rain productions from different portions of its current distribution. So we want to also sample that to explore that possibility. Is it that people keep bringing in and that sort of helps reducing the distinction if you keep bringing from the same population over and over? Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, I guess a lot of these studies are done with the idea of management in mind and kind of helping to deal with these invasive species. And I know that you're kind of mid-flow with this study, but I wonder if you have any thoughts about how this work might help inform us of how to deal with this invasive species or other invasive plants more generally. Sure. These particular studies within a larger framework 
of studying which were interested on um, herbicide resistance and using these species as a model system for managing herbicide resistance. And so one of the biggest questions is, is herbicide resistance evolving independently? Or is it that it evolves in one population and then contaminated other populations or bring that resistance into other populations? And so that's why this study is key to answer that question. What we're seeing now is that it is likely a combination of both, right? So it is likely that these species may be evolving resistant independently in local populations, but also because of this uh, issue of recent gene flow between populations, that resistant genes may be transferred between them. So now we have, with this study, I think the first solid evidence that people need to start taking care of that uh, risk, the risk of the introduction of resistant genes from the outside. So not only focusing on the local population, which is what most current management plans do, but they also need to start considering how to prevent migration from outside sources. That was Dr. Diego Alvadro Serrano, lead author on the paper, The Relative Contribution of Natural Landscapes and Human-Mediated Factors on the Connectivity of a Noxious Invasive Weed. As we were wrapping up our conversation, Diego mentioned something that I really liked. He was describing that this study sort of flips the normal landscape genetic narrative, as these studies typically look at the connectivity between threatened species and highly fragmented habitats. In contrast to this, the work he and his collaborators are doing uses landscape genetic techniques to look at the spread of the morning glory in response to human activity. And he's right, you don't see many studies like this. So I highly suggest that you go and give the full article a read. Of course, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's www.nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can also discover more about the journal and how you can get your research published in it. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. If you want to keep up to date with Heredity, you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal, and you can follow the Genetic Society on Twitter, at UK, or you can find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen, and I hope you all have a glorious new year.